So we're going to uh, look at just a couple of verses today, one primarily. Would you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2? We're going to read verses 1 and 2. Would you stand? And I'll read these together. You can follow along on the screen. I think it's on. The word of the Lord. It says this. When the day of Pentecost had come, they, the disciples, and presumably um, some of the women that are mentioned in chapter 1, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. The word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks. Would, you, would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we pray that as we look into your word, you would give us eyes that are illumined by uh, your Holy Spirit. Father, as you caused the Apostle Paul, who was the great missionary to the Gentiles, uh, to, to see you one day in a way that he had not seen you before, we pray that this morning we would all see something of you that we have not seen, that we will think about some attribute or some power of your glory that we have not considered before, that you would work in us and that you'd, you would transform us as we look into your word. Father, we thank you for Jesus, who is the word. We thank you for sharing yourself with us in a way that's personal and in a way that's powerful. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Last week, we considered the season when the Holy Spirit was given. That was the topic, the focus of our time together, the season. And I said that there were things about that season in particular, particular time of the whole outpouring of the Spirit that were instructive for us as we seek His power in our lives today, in this church and in, in our country. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to follow up on that sermon from last week, and I want to consider the manner of the Holy Spirit's coming, the way in which the Holy Spirit came. We talked about the Holy Spirit has been active and alive and, and present from all of eternity. So this is not when he, he was not created or made. He's God. But he comes in Acts chapter 2 and in the following chapters, there, he's going to be, um, there's going to be an outpouring of his spirit in a way that is different and unique. We talked about that last week. So I want to consider the manner of his coming and then next week, I'd like to consider the effect of his arrival. When he came, what happened? So we're going to look at ch chapter 2, verse 1 this morning, and I don't care. Amelia, you could just keep it on the screen if you want. That might be helpful. Suddenly, there came from heaven. In considering the manner of his coming, notice this word, suddenly. Suddenly. A noise from heaven. Now, there are other times where the idea of suddenness arises in connection with Jesus Christ. Think about it for a moment. What might the other instances be? Well, one instance would be on that sleepy, unsuspecting night in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, also wrote a gospel with his name, the Gospel of Luke. And in Luke, it is recorded that on that night when Jesus was born, in the same region where Jesus was born, 
There were shepherds out abiding in their fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And the angel of the Lord suddenly stood before some unsuspecting shepherds that were out in the field. All of the sudden, and they were terribly frightened. The presence of the angel and the display of the glory of the Lord made these men terribly frightened. This was to announce Jesus coming to earth, born of the Virgin Mary. We're told many times throughout the ministry and the teaching of Jesus that when he comes again in the future, the the return of which we anticipate, his second coming will also be sudden. He describes the state of those who haven't prepared for that day by saying that that day will come upon them suddenly like a trap. That's what Luke says in chapter 21. We're also told that he will come suddenly like a thief in the night, unannounced, unprovoked. It will be sudden. Of course, what I want to say to you is that what is sudden for us is not sudden for God. He knows the Spirit's coming was no surprise to him. He not only anticipates what will come, but he decrees it. It is his plan all along. I remember a few years ago I was learning about the fall of Constantinople. Have you ever heard about the fall of Constantinople and the things that were involved with that? It was a long process, but there was a, a certain set of facts that stuck out to me. And the fall of Constantinople happened was, was, was because of a, a young Ottoman warrior whose father had been a sultan. And this young Ottoman warrior who had sort of taken his father's place was called Mehmed. And it's a fascinating story of how Constantinople fell. Byzantine Emperor Constantine XI was ruling the city at the time. And for centuries, no one had been able to penetrate its humongous walls. The city is surrounded. The city is sort of shaped like a triangle. If you have a triangle, it's sort of shaped like a triangle on its side. And all three sides were surrounded by these Theodosian walls, massive, thick stone walls that were, no one had been able to get through. On the top side of that triangle and on the, oh, on, well, the, the southeast side of the city, there was water that flanked them. On the north side, on the top of the city, the water was a channel called the Golden Horn. And this channel came past the city and then emptied into where the Bosphorus Strait comes down. And I know it's not water that we're super familiar with, but they're surrounded on two sides and the city's in the shape of a triangle. You guys with me? So, this channel emptied into the strait and where it emptied into the strait One of the things that had been rigged up to protect the city from intruders, from enemies, was they had decided to, across the channel, put a steel chain, an iron chain, which they attached to some device, which they cranked up the chain, and it lifted out of the water when, in times where there were no ships that were allies coming in, and then they'd let down the chain to let their friends and friendly friendly ships pass by, but then they'd crank up this chain, and no ships could even get close to the city gate where they'd need to because, you know, you can't sail through a steel, uh, a big chain across the top of the water. So it's sort of an ingenious uh, technological advancement for the time. Um, 
Mehmed was in a siege against Constantinople. He was trying to smoke them out. He was trying to starve them out. And it was going on and on, and one day Mehmed had an idea. He wasn't able to get his ships past that chain. His men were on the other side of the channel, north of the city. And the siege was just droning on. He wasn't really able to get enough you know, power up near the city to really break through the walls. What was he going to do? Well, in lieu of not being able, in, since he couldn't sail his ships up to the city, what he did was he decided that he was going to take his ships out, out of the water, a little bit north of, uh, in the Basra Strait. And what he did, the plan he conceived, was to, in the night, in one, one night, he was going to cut down the trees of the forest, he was going to hoist his ships up onto the land, and he made these greased skids through the forest, and his men hauled their warships over land and dropped them into the channel right outside the gate of Constantinople. And so in the morning... When the people of the city got up and they thought they had their channel and the big iron gate to protect them, what they saw was at the, at the gate where the ships would sail into the city, Mehmed's forces were there. The cannons were loaded. They opened fire. And that day, I think it was that day or maybe the next day, the city fell. The city that hadn't fallen in centuries fell. The point is, Mehmed's ships appeared to those in Constantinople suddenly. They came out of nowhere. They woke up and saw them and couldn't believe their eyes. But that was to only those in the city. It didn't seem sudden to Mehmed. He had devised the plan in his head. It certainly didn't come suddenly to his men who were trying to shove gigantic warships across the dry ground on greased wooden slats. It wasn't sudden for them. They knew the plan. It was sudden to those that were caught off guard by it. This is the connection to our passage that I'm trying to make by sharing this little story with us. It is by the authority of God that the Spirit works. The Spirit is free and sovereign to act without being bound to anyone's timing or technique or expectations. Things that are sudden are almost always out of your control, aren't they? I remember we're, we're about ready to have a, a child in, in February, and I remember the last time we had a child, I was sitting with Aaliyah uh, about, what, 11.30 on the, on the sofa in our back room, and all of a sudden, she looks at me and says, we need to go to the hospital. So we drove down to the Wood County Hospital, and within, what, 10 minutes, we had the baby. Sudden. It wasn't in our control, was it? These things happen all throughout life. You know, uh, a car accident. Perhaps you've been in a car accident, and to you, it appeared all of a sudden. I was, a couple of young high schoolers recently got in a car accident here, and they were making a left-hand turn. It wasn't their fault, and somebody came through the intersection. Bang! He didn't see the car coming at all. I remember being in an accident with Ryan Brown when I was in high school, and I just remember making a sort of a, a slow turn, another left-hand turn. Wow. Be careful driving home. And all of a sudden, boom! All I remember is suddenly all I could see was smoke all around the windows of the car. I didn't know what had hit me. 
Well, this is the case with things that are sudden. Most of the time, they're outside things out of our control. And that's why they appear sudden to us. So too with the Spirit's work. This is the truth that's being driven home in our passage this morning. And by the many other passages that speak about God doing what he wills in sudden ways. And Jesus says he'll come like a thief in the night to telegraph to us his authority to come when he wills. It's by God's choice when he decides to come. He makes the decision, and to all of us, the time that he is appointed might appear sudden, but it's his authority to do as he wills. We must remember that though the Spirit of Christ is yoked to our hearts, though he lives within us, Though he prays on our behalf and serves as an advocate for us, these are all things that scriptures speak about the Spirit doing for us. Though it is right that we expect power from him and that we pray for it, we must never fall into the error of thinking that we dictate to the Holy Spirit or that we make him to do what we want. Christ's Spirit acts by his own choice and by his own authority. He works in the manner and in the timing that he wants, he keeps his own hours. He won't be played by the mechanisms of man. And as I said last week, some of you are more likely to dictate what he won't do than what he will do or what he must do. But again, as we said, either of these approaches to the Holy Spirit must be abandoned. You don't control what the Holy Spirit does, either negatively or positively, proactively or or in absence. Our approach to the Holy Spirit is that he is great. He is powerful, he is mighty, and we are not. We are surprised by him at many points. While God is given to us, while the Holy Spirit, rather, is given to us as a, a helper, he is not your butler. He has the power and authority to do as he pleases. He does things at times and in ways that we could not expect, and that is a part of God's glory. You need to recognize that. The Scripture says that it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. We do things, and most of the time we always want to make sure people know what we're doing and why. God is not like us. It's His glory to do something and to hide it, to hide His motivation, to not share it. In the time of the Great Awakening throughout New England here in the U.S., There was an instance where Jonathan Edwards stood and read his manuscript. It's documented. Because he was nearsighted, he needed to hold up the pages of his notes close to his face. And you can imagine how such a method would be hard to pay attention to. Imagine me if I I addressed you like this. And we're told that when he read the particular verse that he was using as a sermon passage, their feet shall slide in due time. That's the passage he read. That the Holy Spirit was poured out on the congregation and the people listening began to tremble and cry out. Not because he was a great orator. Not because he had curated a perfect experience that would hit on all the right emotional notes. Not because he was a nice guy or he was attractive and made everyone feel good about themselves. No, absolutely not. There was a response because of the sudden powerful work of the Spirit to open their eyes to their need for the forgiveness of God and His love for them. The Holy Spirit used Jonathan Edwards' sermon as he preached that day to save thousands in a day 
suddenly. That's the Holy Spirit's power. It's by His power. It's by His authority. I want to ask you again, do you want, desire, need His power in your life? If you do, you're going to have to give up your own. You recognize that, don't you? You can't have it both ways. Of course, we all want it until it implicates us for something. You can't live off your own power and and the power of God. Do you want his power? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He strengthens and supports the humble. He gives He fills the humble with his spirit. We're told that the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support the man who is fully committed to him. That means the man, the woman that God will choose to firmly support is a man or woman who is not firmly committed to himself. Do you recognize that? Humility. I asked last week if you desired a great work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. If you do, you must be willing to give up your own authority, your own power, your own strength, and embrace His. How will this be seen? Well, I think chiefly uh, this will be seen by what we ask of God, the way we speak to Him. You know, I... I think that the measure of a man's faith will be shown by the measure of a man's prayers. What are you asking God for? I've just said you need to be humble. But being humble doesn't just mean being quiet or living in the background. You know, we're told that Moses was the most humble man to ever live, and he did many bold things. There was much said about Moses. He was in many situations where he was before crowds before kings and needed to speak. Humility isn't just living in the corner pretending not, you don't want anyone to notice you. That's, that's, that's most often pride masquerading as humility. Moses was a humble man. But Moses persistently demanded that Pharaoh let God's people go. He was bold. He, he declared this in a visible way. He said, <laughs> Pharaoh tried to you know, negotiate Moses wouldn't have it. Nope, we're going to take everyone, and we're going to go outside the city. Moses was humble. Why? Well, he was humble in his submission to God's command. He was obedient. God had told him, go speak to Pharaoh. Moses didn't want to. He said, no, pick somebody else. He was obedient to what God had said. He also relied on the power of God. Humility. He didn't rely on his own power. He couldn't do it himself. He relied on the power of God. He was humble. True humility means that you must act, act, live in reliance upon the Holy Spirit. Going beyond yourself and trusting yourself to God. So first, in considering the manner of the Holy Spirit's coming, notice that the Spirit has the power and authority to come suddenly, all right? Second, notice that there was a noise like a violent rushing wind. 
And we're not going to spend too much time on this other than to reflect how this description further supports what we've said about the Spirit's power and authority. It is remarkable that in both the Greek and Hebrew languages, the word used for wind and the word used for the word spirit are the same. This is why Jesus said to Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. He's using the same word in, in his wordplay there, pneuma. The spirit is like, is like the wind. And you notice Jesus says, no one knows where it comes from or where it is going. He cannot be controlled. He cannot be forced. Luke describes the noise that was experienced in Acts chapter 2 by saying that it was like a violent wind. I remember a few years ago, I was driving across the plains of North Dakota. And since I was in North Dakota, I was taking an occasion to get as close to 100 miles an hour in my 12-passenger 12, 12 van as I could. And I was rolling, I don't know, maybe 85, 87 miles an hour. We weren't going that fast. Across these, this two-lane highway, barreling down, you know. And all of a sudden, I just got, I, I got, I thought we were going to die. I didn't know what had happened. It had started raining, and then out of nowhere, I felt my side of the van lift off. I, I probably didn't lift off the ground, but it might have. No one can deny if I said we lifted a foot off the ground. That's what it felt like. I felt like all of a sudden, a burst of wind had come and just wrecked me, and I was now driving like this. And I was terrified slammed on the brakes, found the first overpass, and camped out there for probably a solid hour. Now, what had we incurred? Well, we had incurred, we were near um, Jamestown, North Dakota, where we happened to be spending the night that night. And they had uh, winds that moment that were, you know, what was it, 85 to 90-some miles an hour. And, I, and they hit me like a wall. I drove right into them. I never experienced anything like it. So after an hour under an underpass, I decided, okay, it seems like it's calmed down. We made our way to Jamestown. We had booked a hotel that had water slides for the kids. The entire city had lost power. And you want to know, lost power, lost power. Walmart lost power, okay? There wasn't a restaurant we could go to. There wasn't a grocery store we could buy anything at. And the water slides were shut off. What a bummer. But that's the power of the wind. We heard that the winds had reached, you know, 90 miles an hour on the plains there. Semis had been flipped over. RVs had been flipped over. The next day we saw some of the wreckage that we had just, you know, touched a little bit in our van. It's the power of the wind. Violent, rushing wind. A couple of weeks ago I was up in Traverse City on Sleeping Bear, uh, near Sleeping Bear Dunes, and if you've ever been up there, one of the things you should take a notice of is they have these markers, these big poles in the sand that stick out. And if you notice what those poles are for, it's to show you how much the dunes have moved. Each year, I think they move, what, a foot or something like that, maybe even a foot and a half. And you have these huge dunes that are just migrating every year. And, um, you know, within 50 years, all those houses on Glen Ar up in Glen Arbor are going to be covered in sand. It's the power of the wind. Both these illustrate 
the power of the natural world. And of course, Luke says that it was like a violent rushing wind to describe the great power of the Holy Spirit. Of course, there are times where the Spirit's presence is more comp- could be more comparable to a, a gentle breeze, bringing a sense of peace and calm to our hearts. But this is not the wind that's described here. It's a violent rushing wind. It's a torrent signifying the unmatched power of the Holy Spirit. Wind is irresistible, and so is the Spirit of God. When and where He chooses to work, nothing can stand against Him. In the Old Testament, the false pagan idol Dagon falls before the ark of the Lord. The idol- idolatry cannot stand when the winds of God blow upon them. This is a truth that we must grasp tightly Especially in light of what what I began by speaking about this morning, when it feels like the world is in ways going to pieces around us as the powers of wickedness seem to advance and the light of godliness seems to grow dull, do not suppose for an instant that the Spirit of God cannot destroy with one gust all that man believes will be his everlasting monument to his own greatness. All of the things that humanity tries to erect to its own self, will be one day and can be at any time toppled by the wind of God's power. The Spirit of God is in the business and has been in the business of toppling man's glory since the Tower of Babel. The Spirit of God is powerful. God has not given to us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and love and discipline. And I want to ask you, have you experienced this power in your life? Is this something that you desire? Do you desire his power more than your own? Again, I I said earlier, it's an exchange. You can't have it both ways. Do you find comfort in his authority and in his presence in your life? Or are you anxious and fearful? Like King Saul in the Old Testament, nervously waiting for God's prophet to show up, too transfixed on your own problems and fears, and therefore giving into taking the situation into your own hands, living by your own strength, rather than waiting for the power of God. The Spirit is powerful and irresistibly so. This power is offered to you through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you desire to be strengthened by His power, the power of the Spirit in the inner man? Paul says this is what he desired for the church of the Ephesians. I desire that you are strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit in your inner man. Is that your desire? Is that the sort of strength you need? How often is Paul's prayer your prayer? As we've considered the manner of the Spirit's coming this morning, his coming was sudden. His coming had the sound of a great rushing wind. And both these observations underscore the power and the authority of Christ's Spirit. The third and the final thing that I want to address this morning is that I want us to take notice of what we're told at the end of verse 2. Look at it with, you, with me, if you will. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. Filled the whole house. What is there to learn from the manner of the Spirit's coming in this? Well, it is this. When the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, inhabits the house... He does not just occupy the study or the foyer or the entryway. He fills the house. He fills the house. 
In other words, the Spirit can't be relegated to just a portion or a section of your heart. You can't just give Him a section of your life and say, I'll have you here, thank you very much. If you are born again by His Spirit, He enters the whole heart, not just a segment of it. We're going into the colder months outside, and we've got windows that are extraordinarily drafty, enough that on a windy night in the winter, it can blow out a candle on our dining room table. We're doing something about that. A couple weeks ago, we put up that plastic that seals the windows. And in a few months, when it's spring and it starts warming up, we're going to peel off all that plastic wrap that we've pasted our windows with. We're going to open the windows and we're going to get fresh air into our whole house after the winter months of being boxed in with that sort of stagnant air that keeps going through our HVAC. And when we do that, Aaliyah always loves it. I do too. It's nice feels fresh, feels clean. I'm sure you know the feeling of fresh air in your home. There isn't a corner of our house in the spring that's left feeling stagnant and dank. It's amazing how quickly the whole house feels refreshed after the winter of being bundled up. Everywhere the wind infiltrates is changed. The same thing is true with your heart. I said last week that we're told our hearts are the temple of the Holy Spirit and that He resides within us. And what I want to say is that one of the reasons that the church today is devoid of so much of the Spirit's power is that we want the Spirit, but we don't really want Him everywhere. We really don't want to give our whole heart to the cleansing and the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't want Him to fill the house. There are many who want Jesus and they welcome him into the foyer of their home, the entryway. They don't want him to go further. There are many who want the power of the new birth to save them, but they are resistant of that same power to change them. They want him, but they would rather him be the sort of savior that isn't too personal, that doesn't know where the junk drawer or the junk room of their house is at the end of the hall, that doesn't see that their toilet bowl has stains around the rim. They don't want him to get that personal. No, no. They'll sit on the porch with him. They'll welcome him into the the nice formal room that's always kept clean because no one actually lives in it. But they don't want him going further. We want him when it's convenient. What do I mean by that? Well, when it's expected by those around you when you're in a group that maybe sort of believes the same thing. You'll accept him with regard to other people's lives. Obviously, you have no problem seeing the need of the Holy Spirit for them. I hope they're here this morning. They need this message. Amen. I hope they're here. It's much harder to look at your own self. You're happy to have him as long as he doesn't get too personal, as long as he doesn't start going to clean out all the long-held idolatries and pet pleasures of my heart, I'll have him. But if the Holy Spirit is to reside in your heart, then he must fill the entirety of the house. We want him where it's convenient. We also want him where or when we think we need help. And isn't this true? 
How often in Jesus' public ministry did this happen? There were those that were in desperate situations, dire straits. They needed help. They were very glad to have his healing touch, his feeding hand. They were quite, quite glad for the benefits that they received from him. And yet when they were healed, when their stomachs were filled, when their needs were met, somehow they just didn't seem to need him in the same way. Think about the lepers that Jesus healed. We're told that Jesus healed 10 lepers. 10 lepers wanting healing. 10 lepers healed. 10 former lepers ecstatic with great joy at them being healed. Only one actually given any thought to gratitude toward Christ. Only one who didn't immediately turn and run away happy but absolutely thoughtless about the Savior that had just done the healing. There were others that were healed, and Jesus was very particular. He said, don't tell anyone what I've done for you. And immediately, they turn and they disobey. They start declaring what Jesus had done, which may seem like a good thing. In certain ways, we can sort of sympathize with them, but it was completely disobedient to what Jesus had just said to them prior. It's the glory of man to conceal a matter, right? Jesus says at times, don't tell anybody what I've done for you. And they showed that they had disregard for the man that had healed them. Many today are like those lepers. They're quite interested in what Jesus can offer them when they have a burning need. But when their need is met, their interest in Christ, their interest in the power of his spirit wanes and they drift away. Often we want him when it's convenient or when we need help. The third thing is we want him when he helps us reorganize, but we don't really want him when he calls us to take all of our junk to the curb for big trash pickup. Do you guys ever do a big trash pickup? You live in a place that allows big trash pickup? How many of you guys? Come on, man. Show me hands. Who loves big trash pickup day? Yeah, we all do. All right. I love big trash pickup. But I only like it if it's the stuff I don't want. You know? You ever find your spouse put, dragging something out in the garage? You're like, whoa, 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 whoa. What are we doing with that? Uh, last week at our Builders Conference, some of the speakers were speaking about this sort of phenomenon, this fact that there are a number of secular voices, non-Christian voices today in our culture that are parroting in their own verbiage with their own words basic fundamental teaching from the Bible, like it's some life-changing great discovery, and it is life-changing, but like it's some mysterious thing that they've just tripped over, and it's like, wait, well, the Proverbs says this all over. I mean, this is just basic stuff here. Like, it's good to have a lifelong commitment to your spouse. It's good for your children. It's, uh, let me think here, it's disciplining and having standards in your home leads to thriving amongst your kids. It's good not to live in virtual reality all the time. I mean, things like this. It's like these big discoveries. There are many who want Jesus for reorganization. He helps them see that these things are good and they are helpful. They actually enrich your life. But that's all they're willing to look to him for. There's a big divide between those sorts of people and the man or the woman that's filled with the Spirit of God that loves Jesus Christ. When the Holloway dumpster is dropped off in your driveway, 
do you start having some second thoughts about what God is wanting you to get rid of in your life? You're happy to have him reorder the shelves. Yeah, take all that old stuff, put it away in the closet. We'll put some new stuff up on the mantle and on the bookcases. But you don't really want to part with it. It still has value, all that old stuff. Put it away in the closet or put it down in the basement, put it out in the barn. Sometime in the future, I might want that back. I can't get rid of it. It's worth something. But this, is not, this is not how Jesus works. This is not how his spirit works. Jesus cleanses the temple. His Holy Spirit fills your soul, your heart, your life. He doesn't just reorganize your heart. He gives you a new heart. That's what Ezekiel says. The Holy Spirit lays claim to all of you, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if you want Jesus to claim you on the great and final day, that judgment day that we read about and we read about last, this past year in Revelation, you must allow him to claim you. If you want him to claim you there, then he has to claim you and he has to claim all of you. If you want the power of his forgiveness, then you must also have the power of his cleansing. If you want him to cleanse you, then you must let him in to the whole house, to continue that analogy. After all, wasn't it Jesus who pointed out and warned his disciples about even cleansing a house without filling it with something good? He told his disciples, there was a man who decided to clean out his heart and an unclean spirit came from it. But after a while, the unclean spirit said, I'm going to return to the house that I came from. And it says that when he came, he found the house unoccupied, swept and put in order. And then the unclean spirit went out and got, got seven of his friends, and so the end state of the man was worse than the beginning. That's, the, that's the, the, the parable, the story that Jesus tells. Our lives must be more than just swept and put in good order. Having children that look good, instilling discipline, being faithful, being hard worker, we must have more than a surface that's clean. We must be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's interesting. Jesus says the house had been swept and put in order, but it was unoccupied. The Holy Spirit must fill your heart. He must fill your life. We must be filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, this week, I, I keep asking you the question, do you desire the Holy Spirit's power in your life? Do you desire all the things that come along with that? Do you desire to see God poured out in this country? And if so, how does that implicate you? What might he want from you? Israel wanted to be freed from the tyranny of Egypt, and it implicated every one of them. It was by the Spirit, it was by God's power, but it implicated them all. If these are things that you want, there are some truths that you must live in line with. Live in line, live agreeing with, living in the light of the fact of God's authority and power over all things. To him be glory and majesty and dominion and authority. God is powerful over all things. Psalm 115 says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He isn't bound to what you or any other person wants him to do. He is not controlled. His ways are marvelous. And it is his glory to conceal a matter. When he shows up, it's often sudden, in ways that are unpredictable, in ways that make us scratch our heads at times, but also give thanks to him. Do you serve a God that is sovereign to do what he wills? Is your approach to this God humble? The man or the woman 
who is sincere in their desire for the Spirit's power does not need to be great, does not need to be powerful in themselves. Why? Because they serve a God who is. Therefore, humility, humility. Along with humility, pray. We already said this. This is a recap. Pray. The more humble you are, the more you'll go to God, and the greater your expectations will be of him. The humble man expects great things from God. He has a small view of himself. He has a small view of what he can achieve. And so what he can do isn't even a factor in his thinking. The proud man goes to God but is always throttled back in his expectation by the resounding question in his mind, what can I achieve? What can I achieve? I don't want to pray something that I can't make happen. I don't want to pray for something that I can't act on right now and, and show my own power in achieving. If we're humble, then we will pray. And when we pray, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, that's what the Scripture says, by interceding on our behalf. And I pray that God would forgive us for being so faithless to pray, so despairing in the presence of such a great power. How often are we in despair? How often are we downcast? How often are we content to live in the despair of our minds rather than living before the Lord in prayer? Not denying there are hard times, but where are you going? What are you doing as a result of them? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't be the man who wants to have Jesus, but who doesn't want Jesus to get too far into his life. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. He offers himself freely to you, but he won't remain in the entryway. He won't just be content to stay in the foyer. He will come and sit at your table with you and dine. Is this the sort of relationship that you have with the Lord? Is this the sort of Lord that you want to be poured out with power in your life and in those around you? Let's pray.